Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that by the power of your Spirit that you'd help us to understand the Holy Bible as we study it. I thank you, and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're beginning an overview, beginning an overview of Revelation 2 and 3. And we're beginning by observing something that is consistent in every one of the seven messages to the seven churches. One item is that the messages are given not directly to the churches, but to the messengers of the churches, and unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna. What does the Greek word angel mean? It means messenger. To the messenger, here's the message to the messenger of each church. The first point I want to bring out is that though we ought to be kind to every living human, though what we do to the least of our brethren is something we have done unto Jesus, though Jesus identifies himself with every living person, more particularly, he identifies himself with his messengers, so that an insult given to one of God's messengers is an insult received as if given to Jesus himself. Look at your handout. I want to read to you some statements there from the Bible. It'll save us some time and turning pages if we read it from the handout. We're looking at Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, And as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. There's the first point we made, that what Jesus identifies himself with how many persons in humanity? He identifies himself with everyone in humanity, so that you cannot be rude to the uncultivated. You cannot despise the untalented. You cannot harbor a grudge against your brother or your sister, and I mean literally, brother and sister. You cannot be contrary in action or thought to one of the people in the web of humanity without it being received as if done to Jesus. And when you do something kind for someone, it, has re it is received as if you had done something kind for Jesus. If I were to ask the question, how would you get closer to Jesus? Would this truth present an answer to you? What might you do to get closer to Jesus? Yes. You would go and love that's it. Do something kind to someone. By seeking out people to show them kindness, you draw, you draw closer to Jesus and qualify yourself to be on the right side of the sheep and the goats division. Look at the next passage, Matthew 10. <clears throat> he that receiveth you, this is speaking to the apostles, receiveth me. 
And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And in this same story is found in Luke, it adds, And he that despiseth you despiseth me. And Matthew continues, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So in the first passage, Jesus identifies himself with everyone in humanity. But more particularly, who does he identify himself with? That's right, his prophets, his messengers, his righteous men. More particularly, he identifies himself with them. The next passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. It's interesting. How did he give the command? That's right. The command that was given through God's messenger is as if it is from Jesus. He that despiseth, he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but, what does it say? God, who also hath given unto us his Holy Spirit. This is the point that God's messengers pray for and receive the power of his Holy Spirit. And when they are treated with disrespect, God relates as if his spirit has been treated with disrespect, even to the point of denying that the disrespect was directed against the human agent. What did Paul say? Despiseth not man, but God. I'd like you to read the next paragraph on your own later, but I'm going to skip it and go to the Revelation 1.16. Would you um, kind of summarize just the, the, maybe the beginning statement that you said in reference to that particular... Um, it was kind of like a main statement that you made on this one. On the third passage? The third passage, what I'm saying, is that we're despising... Because Jesus fills men with his Holy Spirit then when we resist or treat the messengers with disrespect, we're treating his spirit with disrespect. Moving to Revelation 1, verse 16. And Jesus had in his right hand seven, what does it say? Stars. What are the stars in Revelation? It's explained in this same passage. The stars are messengers. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun, shining in his strength. Then verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And then verse chapter 2, verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The summary of these three passages is that Jesus presents his messengers as if they are specially held in his hand, as if they are his prized possession. He identifies himself 
Maybe some of you in that first handout, first handout in this semester wondered what T-I-H-I stands for. It stands for this is his identity. In other words, this is a quality that Jesus uses later to describe himself when he introduces himself to the seven churches. And this is one of them. One of his identifying characteristics is he's the one that holds his messengers and dwells with his church. He walks in the midst of the golden candlestick. Typically in this class, we're not studying the writings of Ellen White, but I want to read to you something here that illustrates the truth we've just noted in the Bible. I have been carrying a great burden for the people in Battle Creek. Last night I was laboring most earnestly in prayer. Did you ever note that? Note that? That Ellen White, though a prophet, what kind of labor did she do? She labored in prayer. And how did she do it? Earnestly. Earnestly. It sounds like it was work. The commission was given me by the Savior. It is not you they have rejected, but me, their Savior. You have nothing to retract of the messages that you presented during the general conference held at Oakland and during the Berrien Springs meeting. You have a work to do of the same order. You have nothing to regret in the words you have spoken and written to the leading medical missionary workers. I have for you still more decided messages to bear. Those who have made light of the messages that I have given my messenger to bear have insulted the one who gave the messages." Our people, this is unquoting, or not quoting Jesus any longer. Our people need to humble their hearts and confess their sins and be converted. They need to fear and tremble lest God's Spirit be withdrawn from them and they be left to hardness of heart and blindness of mind because they have rejected the word God has given them. The messages that God has sent have been born line upon line, precept upon precept. There's more you could read there, but the summary of what I wanted you to understand is that it's a solemn thing how you relate to God's messengers. Because who is speaking through the messengers? God by His Holy Spirit. And what is the sin that is incurable? It's the sin against the Holy Spirit. When we make light of God's messengers, we wound the spirit, we injure our own soul. The next statement from Gospel Workers. Generous provision is made for veterans who have fought for their country. These men bear the scars and lifelong infirmities that tell of their perilous conflicts, their forced marches, their exposure to storms, their sufferings in prison. All these evidences of their loyalty and self-sacrifice give them a just claim upon the nation they have helped to save, a claim that is recognized and honored. So how should you relate as an American citizen to wounded soldiers that you meet? They deserve real honor from us. The wounds that they bear, they bear for the rest of their life because of what they were trying to do for their country. God illustrates the fact that they do receive this kind of respect from the government 
and uses it to contrast it with the way the church relates to those who bear the burden of the message. (coughs) But what provision have Seventh-day Adventists made for the soldiers of Christ? Our people have not felt as they should the necessity of this matter, and it has therefore been neglected. The churches have been thoughtless, and though the light of the word of God has been shining upon their pathway, they have neglected this most sacred duty. The Lord is greatly displeased with this neglect of his faithful servants. Our people should be as willing to assist these persons when in adverse circumstances as they have been to accept their means and services when in health. So a man is giving God's message and he's a, he is a powerful worker. Are people glad to hear him? At least some are. So he is incapacitated by injury or sickness or poverty and now he's having trouble. So they look for someone else to preach to them because he can't do it any longer. Is that the limit of their responsibility? No, there's a mutual obligation to those who have worn themselves out or invested their means to their own detriment into the work of God. God has laid upon us the obligation of giving special attention to the poor among us. But these ministers and workers are not to be ranked with the poor. So do we owe charity to to the poor members of the church? We do. We should take care of those who are are poverty-stricken. But when the ministers, because they give of their time and talent and so aren't receiving money as much as they could in other employment, or because they give generously to the cause, when they're hurting for means, should we think of them as like the poor ones in the church? Listen to what it says. They're not poor. Why? They have laid up for themselves a treasure in the heavens that faileth not. They have served the conference in its necessity, and now the conference is to serve them. Skip a paragraph. Look at the one that says, It is now. It is now the duty of God's people to roll back this reproach by providing these servants of God with comfortable, what does it say? Homes with a few acres of land on which they can raise their own produce and feel that they are not dependent on the charities of their brethren. Is it healthy to feel like you're dependent on other people giving you stuff? So instead of just giving them an allowance every week, that makes them feel dependent. What should the church do for them? Give them a competence. Give them a little home. Give them some property where they can grow a garden and take care of themselves. self-employment because these are speaking of incapacitated ones by being worn out or health or age often these ministers need special care and treatment it goes on to say that our sanitariums should be happy to provide a room for them take care of them at little cost and not charge the regular price for those who are hearing this in recording I'm quoting from Gospel Workers page 427 and 428 Also, you can find it in the seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 292 to 293. The ellipsis that's there after the fifth paragraph is not in the seventh testimony location. You can find what's there, there. So this was our first point in the class, that Jesus identifies himself with everyone, but more particularly, he identifies himself with his 
messengers. He bears them up. We ought to relate to them with respect. We ought to give them special care. We ought to honor them for the sacrifices they've made for our benefit as his church. And when they are incapacitated, we owe them service. Our second thought in this seven churches, the message is to them. Each one of the seven churches ends with a special promise to those that overcome. These promises, though beautiful, are not the only promises to overcomers in the book of Revelation. In fact, Revelation's most precious promises are to those that overcome. Let's just review some of these. The first, or the first few are not from Revelation. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. This is speaking about God and not about you. Is God an overcomer? God the Father is going to overcome in the conflict with evil. And when particularly is the time for him to overcome? It's when he's being judged. It's when he's being evaluated that is the, that is the special time for him to overcome, for his sayings to be proved right. That's interesting to me. Because the Bible highlights a special time for us to overcome also. And when is that time? It's the time when we're being judged. Second Peter chapter 2. Speaking of one class, it says, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. That principle is interesting. If I am overcome by my lusts, then my lusts are overcomers and I am a slave. If I overcome my lusts, then I am an overcomer. And what are my lusts? My lusts are a slave. You will either be an overcomer or a slave. And your appetites, your passions, your desires will either be overcome or they will enslave you. That is, something in you will overcome your mind or your desires. And when the Bible speaks about overcomers, it's speaking about the class whose mind overcomes their Desires. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. The first part of the passage defined who an overcomer is. It's one who has victory over his passions. The second part describes how one does achieve victory over his passions. How is it? It's through a knowledge of Jesus. We talked in an earlier class period about how that is the essence of eternal life. The essence of eternal life is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is how we become overcomers over our appetites, our passions, our desires. But if we do overcome our passions and desires today, is that a guarantee that we'll be overcomers until the end? Isn't it very clear here that some were overcomers at one point and lost their overcoming experience? 
If they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So the promises to the overcomers are ultimately promises to those who overcome unto the end, and not to those that overcame at one point in their life. Moving to 1 John chapter 2. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Are those very different ideas? The old men because they have known the father and the young men because they've overcome the wicked one? You know, from what we learned in Peter, those ideas are not widely separated. How is it that the young men overcome the wicked one? It's by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And of course, John 17 combines that with the knowledge of the Father. What is life eternal? That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But moving on, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. Now, isn't that what he just said to the elder people? I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. It looks like that we have here an idea about how it is that the young men become overcomers. What is it that abides in them? It's by the word of God. The word of God abiding in us is a means to overcoming. We could develop that thought more. We would, if we did, we would not complete the, our lecture in this hour, but it would be worthwhile for you. The Word of God is the means of the power for overcoming. So where would you go for just a hint to get started? Well, Second Peter 1.4 would be a key thought. It talks about how we overcome by the power of knowing Jesus, and it adds the thought that whereby, that is by a knowledge of Jesus, that's how we achieve great and precious promises. Yes, Second Peter 1.4. Yeah, How is it that we overcome? Well, it's by knowing Jesus. But what does knowing Jesus do for us? It's by knowing Him that we become aware and confident in His promises that allow us to partake of the divine nature. I hope that that did not just confuse you. The summary of it is the simple idea. The Word of God dwelling in us is a source of overcoming power. 1 John 4.4 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. But in the context, who are them? They are the, those who bear an anti-Christian message. That's from the verse before. How do we overcome them? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who are the overcomers in this passage? Those in whom Jesus is dwelling. Yeah, those of God in whom Christ is dwelling. That's why they overcome. Because greater is he that is in you. That's how they overcome. Maybe in some respects this overcoming is different than the overcoming we've spoken of so far. The overcoming we've spoken of so far is an overcoming of internal problems, internal difficulties and passions and appetites. Here we speak of overcoming external issues. I wanted to alert you to that because I'm not sure how to resolve it. 
whether overcoming necessarily involves both. I think really the focus of the overcoming promises is on the first thing and not on this thing. 1 John 5, verses 4 to 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Who are overcomers? Overcomers are believers. Overcomers are those who have been born of God because they are taking God at His word. To this point, we've been looking at passages that explain what it means to be an overcomer. Revelation gives a little bit more information about how to overcome, but for the most part, it just illumines the great beauties and gifts that are given to the overcomers. We'll skip Romans 8.37 and go on to Revelation. All of the passages in italics are taken from the seven churches. Revelation 2 and 3. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Just think for a minute. The overcomers are given to eat to the tree of life. But isn't there so much implied in that promise? That's the undoing of the curse. Because in the curse, they were separated from the tree of life. And where is this tree of life? In heaven, and particularly in the passage, where is it at? If you have access to the tree of life, you must have access to the paradise of God. And more than that, when they were separated from the tree of life, God said, lest they take therefrom and live forever. So if we can eat from the tree of life, what are we receiving in that gift? An ability to live forever by virtue. What beautiful gifts to those that are overcomers. Chapter 2, verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Isn't that the same promise? But it highlights a warning. It implies something about those that are not overcomers. What will happen to those that don't overcome? That's right. They're going to suffer the second death. And more than that, both of these passages highlight natural mortality. That is, that God speaking to the first and second Christian age indicated to them by His promises and warnings that immortality is conditional on overcoming. Verse 17, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Now this promise to overcomers is much more a metaphor than the first two. 
because I don't want to take time in this lecture to try to prove the meaning of the metaphor. I'm just going to suggest to you a meaning to it, and we'll move on from there. But Jesus spoke about the manna in John 6. It was an illustration that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what is hidden manna? That would be knowledge about God that is not available to others. Does God give knowledge about himself that is not available to others? Does he give that kind of knowledge to overcomers? The promise is that he will. That he does. That he, he does identify with his overcomers and give them special information. But what about that white stone? Things are written in stone in the Bible to indicate their permanence. You might remember something like that, namely the Ten Commandments. And names in the Bible represent character. And here men are given a name. Is the purpose of this name for men to call it out and to identify them in a crowd? Is this, is this a name for that kind of purpose like we use names? Isn't it apparent it's not for that purpose? Because who else knows this name? Not a soul. But what God has offered is a personal character to each one of us, a pure but personal character personality, different from anyone else's, but pure like everyone else's. And who does he offer that to? Those that overcome in the world are granted that in the world to come, and it is a permanent promise. That is, affliction will not rise the second time. Did I just prove that to you? No, I did not. What did I do? I suggested it to you. If you want to find out if it's so, you're going to have to study it. Verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Does that help us understand what's required of overcomers? Is it, we already talked about from, from what Peter had to say, that it's not sufficient to overcome at a point. Here it's spelled out specifically, the promises to overcomers are to overcomers that continue to overcome to the end. To him will I give power over the nations. Revelation 2 there is quoting from Psalm chapter 2. You might want to study Psalm 2 at some point in case we don't get to it in this class. But Psalm 2 is a promise of the gifts that the Father gives to Jesus. And among those gifts that are given to him is power over all the nations. He rules them with a rod of iron. He becomes the king of kings and lord of lords. And what is promised to overcomers? They share in that. The overcomers that were oppressed by the kingdoms of this world, this honor have all the saints to execute the judgment written. I'm quoting from the end of the book of Psalms. Chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What promise is made to overcomers? Jesus claims them as his own in the judgment. What a beautiful gift. If your question is, how can I be sure that I will be the one that Jesus says, my blood, my blood, Father. Who is it that's covered with Jesus' righteousness? That's overcomers. At about this point, in going through the italics, 
it ought to be apparent to you that those who don't believe in victory over sin have had blinders put over their eyes of a most impenetrable nature. Let's move beyond Revelation 2 and 3. I just want to make sure we get through this material. Revelation 12, 11 is the one passage in Revelation that speaks more about how. And they overcame him. Him in this case is the devil working through the Roman power. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now what's interesting here is that what the devil is trying to do is to, to destroy their life. I'm speaking about Revelation 12. And they overcome him. Does that mean that he failed in destroying their life? No, because it says, And they loved not their lives unto death. So I can overcome the devil even when he accomplishes the very thing he tried to do. What is the devil trying to do in his overcoming of me? He's trying to overcome my body. But how can I overcome him? By the word of my testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, I can be a power for good in this world even by my death. So that in death, I accomplish more. I'm quoting or paraphrasing Acts of the Apostles, page 465. What it says there is that by meeting even death itself with the courage of an unwavering faith, we may accomplish more for the gospel in a few moments than we could have accomplished by a long life of useful labor. That was a slight paraphrase of a quote. 465? Yes. Chapter 17, verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. These represent those ten states that unite against Jesus in the end of time. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Who overcomes? Jesus does in the final battle. Well, how can you be sure that you're overcoming? Be with him. Who are with him? The called are with him, but, but not all the called are with him, because many are called, but few are chosen. Who's with him? The called, the chosen, and the faithful. That is, you can be chosen now, and if you're faithful, you're with him. Chapter 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's a summary of the new covenant promise. Revelation 6 and Revelation 19 are relevant to each other. They're about the church becoming an overcoming church as a whole. I'm going to leave that. It's almost a different idea. 
We might talk more about it. We probably will when we get to the seven seals. Look down to the statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. Pray in faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Prevailing prayer is the prayer of living faith. It takes God at His word and claims His promises. Feeling has nothing to do with faith. Listen, when faith brings the blessing to your heart and you rejoice in the blessing, then it is no more faith but feeling. What's the relation of faith to feeling? Does faith sometimes give way to feeling? It is. So you claim by faith that God will give a gift, say the filling with the Spirit, or a knowledge of, in your study of a certain passage. When He gives you the gift, does that make you happy? If you're aware of the gift, it makes you happy. So now do you have more faith? Your happiness isn't faith. Your happiness is a good thing. It's a great thing to enjoy what you've experienced, but faith precedes the experience. It does not come after it. Faith is when you hold on to the promise before you are recognizing its reception. Going on, for those listening to this, I'm quoting from Signs of the Times, November 18, 1886. How strange it is that men will put confidence in the word of their fellow men, and yet find it so hard to exercise living faith in God. The promises are ample, that is, there's plenty in them. Why not accept them just as they read? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How do we overcome? We read in the Bible verses that faith is the victory. I referred you to 2 Peter 1.4, which says, By promises that we get from knowing God, that's how we overcome. This is simply summarizing those things in an idea, but to help you recognize the distinction between faith and feeling, you can be an overcomer without feeling it. From the fourth volume of the Testimonies, page 220, When you surrender yourself entirely to God... When you fall all broken upon Jesus, you will be rewarded by a victory, the joy of which you have never yet experienced. All right, so here we have a coming experience of super victory. Maybe you have experienced it. She's writing to someone who hasn't apparently had that thorough conversion yet. As you review the past with a clear vision, you will see that at the very time when life seemed to you only a perplexity and a burden, Jesus himself was near you, seeking to lead you into the light. Your Father was by your side, bending over you with unutterable love, afflicting you for your good as the refiner purifies the precious ore. When you have thought yourself forsaken, he has been near you to comfort and sustain. We seldom view Jesus as he is and are never so ready to receive his help as he is to help us. Here's a question you may have about overcoming. How? Here comes an answer. Would you like help from Jesus? However much you would like it, he would like you to have it more than that. 
however much it feels like he has forsaken you, it isn't so. And if your afflictions are coming from him, it's a refining process. Paragraph 2 of the same reference. What a victory you will gain when you learn to follow the opening providences of God with a grateful heart and a determination to live with an eye single to his glory in sickness or health, in abundance or want. Self is alive and quivering at every touch. Self must be crucified before you can overcome in the name of Jesus and receive the reward of the faithful. What does it mean when it says self is quivering at every touch? Ellen White often uses illustrations like this. Self is that part of you that gets irritated when opposed, that is hurt when neglected, that is wounded when gossiped about. Self is that part of you that is busy defending your feelings and thoughts and rights. And if you're going to overcome, that part of you must die. Let me summarize what we've said so far, and I'll close this lecture. There are many thoughts in Revelation 2 and 3. We'll get to them individually as we go. But there's one thought, or two thoughts that we talked about today that are throughout the messages. One of them is that Jesus identifies himself with the messengers and communicates to his church through the messengers. Then we owe the messengers respect while they teach us, and more than that, when they're in trouble. We owe them service for the service they have done to us. How is that debt illustrated? It's illustrated by the service given to soldiers who have been wounded or incapacitated by the service of their country. That's a mental picture we ought to keep in our minds that might help us in our relation to those who have grown old or sickly in God's service. We have at least one saint on this campus that at some point is probably going to become sickly and be laid low. And if that happens to her, what will the church owe her? Care and concern as she has served, the church will owe her service. When we reject the messages that, comes through, that come through the messengers, those messages, messages come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then what are we rejecting or what are we slighting? We're slighting the Spirit of God, and that is very dangerous. That was the summary of the first thought. The second thought we looked at was divided up into how to overcome and what comes to overcomers. Revelation is full of primarily the second thing. What comes primarily to overcomers? Or only to overcomers? <laughs> Everything. They inherit all things. They get a solid character in heaven that never turns other than white. They're granted access to the tree of life and to the paradise of God. They rule with Christ on his throne. Their sins are blotted out. 
Christ claims them as his own in the judgment. They overcome the wicked one on this earth. They are with him. The promises that come to the overcomers are manyfold. But not to those that overcome in an instant, rather to those that hold on to their overcoming experience until the end. How do we overcome? Why, there are many hints, but it's by a knowledge of Jesus. A knowledge of Jesus that makes us, that makes available to us precious promises that come by knowing Him. Those promises, we hold on to them by faith. That is, we let the Word of God dwell in us richly. These are the ways that we partake of the victory that's coming to us. What keeps us back from it? That victory comes with the death of self, and self doesn't want to die. The self we read about in that last quote from Ellen White is the same as the flesh that we must overcome in what we read from the passage in Peter. It's your flesh or your mind. Overcomers are those in whom the mind has victory over the flesh. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would use these words, so many of them directly from your messengers, to provide an experience that we need to claim these promises. That we could be those overcomers that are not only called, but are also chosen and faithful. Those that are with you at the final end. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.